you have chosen to listen to an episode of Mechanical Freak Presents. In this episode, we talk about Harry Truman and the start of the Cold War. It's the first in a three-part series. And guess what? Part two is available now on our Patreon for the price of a Starbucks latte. Come over to Patreon and join your friends who are already there. The water is warm. The content is flowing. Come on over to Patreon. Learn what happened to Germany after the war. Why was it split into two pieces? Korea, what about it? All available on Patreon now. Look in the show description for the link. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Now masters of war, you feel all that they can run. Welcome back. I'm here with a friend of the show, still unemployed tech worker. So if you have some uh, jobs you need done, like cutting, you know, wood for uh, the winter, clearing out an old lot, anything like that, let them know. Uh, Really? also (laughs) Also member of the local council of Seattle DSA, Justin Roll, back with us. How How are you doing? I'm That's doing going great. great. Yeah. Hey, look, we both answered at the same time. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so, are you enjoying the new winter weather here? Um, you know, this has been a pretty good, pretty good fall. I mean, it's it's been nice. I mean, besides the COVID and all the terrible shit happening, if it weren't for that, like this would have been an awesome fall, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's been pretty decent. Um. When we did, we recorded our first uh, episode on Harry Truman and the 44 DNC. Uh, I feel like the weather was warm and all that. And I had, we both had big plans. We had a huge thing of notes, a big plans to do episode two. Uh, and then I very stupidly uh, volunteered to do extra work for my job in exchange for a stipend, which in retrospect seemed very small compared to the amount of work I ended up doing. Uh, so, so here we are in December. <laughs> Never volunteer to do extra work. You got to learn that that lesson. I know, you know, but this is this is the uh, sort of dilemma of the American worker, which is I essentially took professional development classes, and the reason I took them is because you know they they dangled eight hundred dollars in front of me, and they're like, if you okay. complete these two classes, we'll give you eight hundred dollars. And being completely fucking broke, like everybody is in this pandemic, I basically was like, sure, I'll do that. How bad could it be? And then I took them, and now I know. So, lesson learned. (laughs) You all carried on the stick. (laughs) Yep. Just led me right off the cliff, like fucking Looney Tunes. Um, 
But yeah, so last time uh, we ended the episode, you know, we, we got all hyped up and I think we forgot to mention some important uh, sort of facts, some little epilogues for our political characters. Uh, the first being Henry Wallace, who, you know, was our, I think, safe to say hero, maybe, of the last show. Yeah. Uh, who ran a presidential campaign in 1948 as a third party candidate. And uh, the reason why you don't remember him as President Henry Wallace is uh, he, he, he got stomped like every third party candidate does. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Henry Wallace. Um, you know, one thing of note from that campaign, though, is he did run on an anti-nuclear ticket, which uh, hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll see why uh, people will see why that was important at the time. Yeah. So anti-nuclear weapons also like, um, you know, he wants uh, peace with uh, the Soviet Union yeah. and people kind of red bait him for that. Um, and then also in that race, it's kind of a four way race between uh, Truman, Dewey, Wallace, and uh, running as like straight up white supremacist, Strom Thurmond. Yeah, yeah. This is another like fun, you know, I have some thought in mind of doing a whole uh, series of episodes about like the split in the Democratic Party and the Southern Democrats, how they moved to the Republican Party or whatever. This is a very important first, you know, sort of firing of that split, which is, the Dixie Crack Convention in 1948, where uh, the Southern representatives of the Democratic Party uh, hold a giant uh, party in Alabama where they just run up and down the uh, aisles with Confederate flags and talk about how they're going to form their own party. God damn it. Yeah. And, uh, and Strom Thurmond, is, uh, his presidential bid is the uh, sort of first and kind of last gasp of the Dixie Grats. But uh, oh. don't worry, don't not last gasp with them, but last gasp with their say. independent political party. Yeah, uh, I was going to say the other Wallace, the the, the bad Wallace, would yeah. uh, run again on a similar uh, platform <laughs> as Strom Thurmond. Yeah, and Strom Thurmond, of course, definitely not the last we'd hear of him, as he was still the one uh, he held the Senate um, filibuster record, which was like eighteen hours or something like that. For the longest time, he might still hold it, uh, trying to obstruct a civil rights bill. <laughs> and uh, the people of, I believe he's South Carolina, right? But the people of Carolina yeah. were so upset about this that they continued to elect him senator all the way up into the 1990s when he finally fucking died. And uh, Joe Biden read his, uh, you know, eulogy at yeah. his funeral. <laughs> so that was a real thing. Yeah, every everything is connected. Uh yeah, Strom Thurmond, just one of the true arch-racist villains of history. And uh, we elected his friend for president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like three weeks ago. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the past truly never dies. Um, but yeah, um, you know, so it's a really interesting moment. And it's kind of one of those funny things. We were just talking about right before we got uh, on air here. And I had just gone to the Wikipedia page just to look up the results to the 48 election. And I think probably like a lot of people, my memory of this from what it was taught in school was strictly Truman holding up the newspaper that says Dewey wins, right? And yeah. laughing, uh, which, you know, good own on Truman's part. <laughs> I mean, that is funny. <laughs> uh, and I thought the election was a lot closer than it was. 
But uh, Truman really kind of stomps Dewey, too, which is pretty incredible considering, like, one of the major leaders of, like, one of the big factions within the Democratic Party literally runs a third-party campaign against Truman. Uh, and he still is able to just crush, you know, the Republican yeah. candidate and Dewey. Uh, sort of fascinating. I mean, and Thurman doesn't, it's not like Thurman, he, he wasn't Ralph Nader here. He got four states. Yeah. He, he got 40 electoral states. votes. Yeah, he won four states and 40 electoral votes. So it wasn't like Thurman was doing nothing over there. Like he was siphoning votes away from the Democratic Party. And uh, Truman still somehow pulls it out because Thomas Dewey, I guess, was just that charismatic. Well, and Wallace uh, got some votes, too. I mean, Wallace didn't win any states. But... It is presumably also pulling from Truman for the most yeah. part, right? Yep, exactly. And this man who we described in the previous episode as only remarkable in his stunning unremarkableness and Harry Truman somehow still crushes Thomas Dewey, uh, who's what at a second time at the trough here trying to run for president. Yeah. And so the deal is, is, you know, Truman was super unpopular at this point, which is part of the reason he's getting challenged both by Wallace and Strom Thurmond. Um, and so Dewey kind of uh, basically thinks he has the whole thing wrapped up. Like he thinks he's won as soon as he announces. So his whole strategy is just to play kind of a prevent defense, talk about, you know, nothing in his speeches beyond platitudes, even more than like a normal politician. And, uh, you know, if he doesn't make any big mistakes, he's just going to win. So that's kind of his strategy. And then meanwhile, Truman, um, kind of mounts this uh, whistle stop tour where he's, uh, you know, traveling by train and kind of the whole White House, you know, apparatus is kind of traveling by train with him. And he's just, uh, you know, campaigning everywhere and, um, you know, at least making an attempt to appeal to people's, you know, material interests, whether they be, you know, farmers or people working in cities, et cetera. Um, and that's kind of the whole story of this, where, you know, Dewey, Dewey was also uh, campaigning by train as well, but um, he just wasn't really saying or, you know, doing much of anything to appeal to people. He was just trying not to lose. Yeah, which, uh, you know, as we learned, or actually as the Democratic Party never learns, is definitely uh, the way to lose an election is to play not to lose. The, the prevent defense. Uh, yeah. I remember uh, I had a high school football coach who was very fond of saying that the only thing a prevent defense does is prevent you from winning. Um, it's very true. Very true in football, true in politics. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Look at the vote results, by the way. Henry Wallace, uh, 1.1 million votes. So, I mean, oh, wow. you know, he, he, he showed up. I mean. He got basically as many votes as Strom Thurmond did, but because we have a very normal system for electing presidents, Strom Thurmond got 39 electoral votes and Polis got none. So there you go. All right. So I think what we want to talk about mainly in this episode is going to be the foreign policy of the Truman administration. Yep. And when we, when we first started putting together our uh, notes about Truman, the whole idea was like, We'll just have sort of a an afterword at the end of the first episode where it's like, hey, this is what happened at the 44 DNC. And here's a little taste of 
what happens after that uh that that we got because of the machinations at this you know uh convention right and you know we drew up the labor stuff and it turned out that was pretty long and then we started to draw up the foreign policy stuff and it's like oh the entire direction of the second half of the 20th century is essentially laid <laughs> yeah within like four years <laughs> of the end of world war ii uh that's pretty critical so maybe we should dedicate a little more time to it than just 20 minutes at the end of an episode and so i have some notes here i just want to kind of run through real fast just to give an idea of sort of what's happening in this time period right so you know truman gets elected uh in 44 right and by this point the war in western europe is basically over the you know, Soviet military reaches the outskirts of Berlin in March of 45, which is essentially, you know, we could just mark that as the end of the war. It's, you know, it's just waiting for Ber- Berlin to collapse at that point, which it finally does in May, uh, May 7th, right? Um, from that point, the Soviet Union had agreed at Yalta that three months after the German surrender, they would fully enter into the Pacific theater portion of the war, right? Yeah. Uh, invading... Uh, into Manchuria and down into China and eventually into Japan itself if it's required, right? Yeah, that was uh, Truman's big ask from, you know, the big three conference. And Stalin is kind of just like, okay, sure, I'll do that. We're still in the general, like, things are going okay, at least publicly between <laughs> between the allies, right? Yeah. And the three months figure comes from the fact that it t- that it's estimated that it'll take about three months to move the uh, Red Army from Western Europe to Asia, essentially, right? So uh, it's basically like the second this war is over, start booking it over to Asia, right, for the you know other part of the war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, though basically japan's defeated at this point too right it's just a sort of perpetual motion machine that's continuing to go but is uh like all perpetual motion machines actually running out of energy and uh american officials you know knew as early as april 45 that japan was trying to surrender at least as early as then um we had intercepted uh, all their diplomatic cables and broken the codes on them which the japanese didn't know and so we had Figured out by April, the political class of Japan was already basically saying like, hey, uh, here's our terms for surrender. Better start sending out surrender feelers all over the world, right? Uh, With various diplomats all over the world to essentially just start laying the foundations for ending this. Um, You know, on July 12th, the U.S. intercepts a cable uh, saying that the emperor of Japan has actually interceded now in the internal political debates in japan to essentially demand a surrender which is a big deal because the emperor doesn't generally get into the political fray and his stepping in and essentially saying like hey we need to work out you know our terms of surrender uh and basically at this point we know from their diplomatic cables and from their peace feelers that they're willing to surrender on the simple condition that the emperor is not executed (laughs) Um, yeah and that's like i mean even in uh like pro-us debate like that's kind of uh you know the the thing they were talking about is uh do we get rid of the emperor or keep him you know the people were furrowing their brow over that 
Yeah, and there's there's lots of talk going back and forth, and uh, Truman is going to uh, become a stickler in his public debates with uh, Stalin and Churchill, right, with the Soviet Union, Britain, is to become a real stickler on this emperor issue, that the emperor's yeah. gotta go, baby. <laughs> um, to which I think both Churchill and Stalin were a little confused as to the obsession with what to do with a guy who was, by the way, a figurehead ruler before the war. Too, exactly. Right? You know, and like, after the war, like, you know, they they ended up keeping the emperor, but, you know, uh, MacArthur is de facto just ruling Japan anyway. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert for uh, right. how this plays out. Uh, no, 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 no. It's like, spoiler for how this plays out. Uh, Japan still has an emperor. Uh, if anybody who's watched King of the Hill knows, yeah. <laughs> the emperor still in Japan. I believe the son of the emperor at the time of World War II. I don't think it's passed past that point. But uh, and also still a purely symbolic character, like uh, any royalty in uh, Europe or whatever. Just a completely parasitic, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, just a parasite on society itself with no positive values. <laughs> to yeah. it whatsoever but still in existence right so the big thing and the reason why we're kind of going over this sort of uh you know timeline here is that it becomes immediately apparent to the united states uh basically in july and we actually know this because of some documents that were accidentally leaked out to historians uh, because they're stored in the wrong place in the archives. Uh, but, but it becomes apparent that at least by July, the United States it knows that if the Soviet Union enters the war officially in Japan or in China, right, and you know, fighting Japan, uh, yeah. that Japan's going to surrender, right? Like that. This is that all the sort of Japanese political class, the emperor, etc., are sort of in agreement. If this happens, they're going to surrender. And here's a, uh, a report from 1946 that was filed by the War Department Strategic Policy Group of the Operations Planning Division, because, you know, of course, the Pentagon can't have anything that is just a short acronym. Uh, so, quote, Certainly prior to the 31st of December 1945, and in all probability prior to uh, the 1st of November, Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no land invasion had been planned or contemplated. Now, all this matters because on August 6th, the U.S. dropped the first nuclear weapon uh, to be used in war on Hiroshima, and then three days later dropped one on Nagasaki, right? And then and, in between this, uh, Russia, uh, you know, gets on the march and invades uh, Manchuria, right? Like in yeah. between those two bombs dropping, like Russia, Russia was a, Russia was entering the war. Like those conditions yeah. were being met. Well, anybody who did the math from uh, the German surrender and then added three months, Russia essentially agreed to enter the war on August 8th, which they did. Yeah. Um, which leads to a very interesting question, which is knowing what the U.S. knew, which was that Japan desperately wanted to surrender and that they had already kind of agreed that they would surrender the second the Soviet Union entered the war. Uh why drop the fucking bombs, right? And I'm kind of curious, uh, when you were in, you know, middle school or high school and this came up in the 
uh, history book, you know, in your history class, what was the what was the reason given? The narrative in my history book and like, you know, I'm I'm in my 30s. And so everybody I've ever talked to who was, you know, taking social studies at that time is that uh, Truman just had to drop the atomic bomb like the Japanese were relentless and would never surrender under any conditions unless we killed you know hundreds of thousands of their people <laughs> well as as we'll learn later from uh you know the u.s war department uh the asian does not value human life so <laughs> you know this is oh the only God. language they speak right yeah i mean that this has been i would say the popular narrative uh you know forever right uh is that this the bombs had to be dropped to avoid a land invasion of Japan, which you know would have cost you know a million lives. It's usually yeah. the the number that's put up. And what's interesting about this is nobody ever like you know this was the thing that went into history books and stuff like that. Nobody ever thought to question. Isn't it weird that that narrative never even entered the public consciousness until 1947? <laughs> and then nobody asked, where did it come from? Yeah. And luckily, the historian who's probably written like the sort of major work on why the atomic bombs were dropped was a man named Gar, Gar Alperovitz. He actually tracked down the like details of where the story comes from, including the author's notes on you know, uh, basically on writing the article that launches this, which is, you know, in 1947, Henry Stimson uh, ostensibly uh, wrote an article for Harper's Magazine, basically making this point, right? Making an argument for why the bombs had to be dropped and arguing that it was to avoid a land invasion that would have cost a million lives. Now, Alperovitz noted that according to Stimson's own calculation at the time that the bombs were dropped in his discussions with Truman, uh, you know, the casual, if they decided to do a land invasion of Japan, Stimson's own calculations was it'd be about 60,000 casualties. Um, how that gets from 60,000 to millions is sort of interesting question. And in his discussions with Mick George Bundy, who's the person who actually writes the Harper's article, and Stimson puts his name on it. Stimson advises on it. Mick George Bundy mm-hmm. writes it. Uh, another guy, uh, we were talking about connections with Lyndon Johnson or whatever, but Mick George Bundy, a guy who's going to become a, a big part of the Johnson cabinet in the Vietnam War. So just another lifelong hero. Oh, interesting, the, uh, yeah. American foreign affairs story, you know, circles. Um, but yeah, between him and Mick George Bundy, they sort of just throw out this number of 200,000. They're like, hey, why don't we just say the land invasion would cost 200,000 lives? And weirdly, unlike every other thing that they talk about that goes into the Harper's article, there's no notations about where the source comes from, no comments about like what meetings or what groups came up with this 200,000 number. So by all accounts, it seems to have just been completely fabricated in the moment. And then there's no record of how it got to a million by the time it hit the article. And so, again, it's this interesting question of, so we have this article from Harper's that we've based our entire sort of history of why we dropped the bomb. Everything that's taught in school is based off this one, you know, piece of evidence, this Harper's article. And then when you look in their notes, it's also impossible to figure out where this one million number came from. And, you know, uh, Alperovitz offers this idea that 
maybe the origin of the article and the number actually comes from the fact that several months prior to the Harper's article was an article in uh, The New Yorker by a journalist named John Hersey uh, called Hiroshima. And it was the first article talking about the actual impacts of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where it's the first time Americans are going to get to look at photos of victims of the bombing, photos of the city afterwards, and get long descriptions of what nuclear weapons actually do to human beings when they're used. And it's a sensation. Uh, You know, the New Yorker basically has to go to press and print thousands of extra copies to sell. It's instantly converted from an article into a book. Like, literally, just he doesn't add anything to just fucking bind it and turn it into a book, and it becomes a bestseller. And then, miraculously, this Harper's article (laughs) arrives months later from Henry Stimson. Um, So, why did the bomb get dropped? (laughs) Right? I mean, that kind of puts us back to where we started, right? Which is, we... We have this timeline of the bomb being dropped. It doesn't appear that it was needed to end the war. We know that the reason that we were told for why it was dropped was bullshit. Yep. And it comes to why did the bomb get dropped? And so you read the McCullough biography of Truman, which I think is safe to say is like the biography of, of Harry Truman. Yeah. It's what, every, it's what everybody reads, right? It's, it's, it's the quintessential Truman biography. I was curious what was McCullough's sort of take on this? Um, I mean, take it with with uh, a, a grain of salt because you know the McCullough biography. Yeah, I suspect, of... Well, I suspect we're going to have some disagreements with McCullough, but it is worth oh, yeah, hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, worth hearing. Yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, you know a a great man theory of uh, history, and um, you know M- M- McCullough, like the McCullough take, is also that you know we we had to drop it. Um, you know the uh the japanese were not going to surrender and that kind of thing but mm-hmm. i mean the the mccullough biography does you know lay out that um hey like russia russia was was coming in hot here um that was a thing that was going on um uh yeah yeah and i you know i think the sort the the from the historian's point of view, I, I think the consensus of historians has been one that the the bombs were not required to end the war. I, I, I think it's been the historian's consensus for a long time. Yeah, but the growing consensus since the '90s, and the reason why it takes so long for these consensus to to come about, is that uh, a lot of the stuff you know regarding the use of nuclear weapons in Japan was classified in a lot of it still is classified to this day but nobody had access to it for a very long time and then you know things get leaked out over time on accident or on purpose and then things just get declassified over time but the thing that comes out from you know the sort of historians debate over this is that at least when you look at communications inside the truman administration between truman administration and the war department is that the real discussion of using the bombs has very little to do with Asia and a whole lot more to do with Europe. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, The other thing I forgot to mention was Mm -hmm. um, in McCullough, and I sort of agree with this, it's very much framed as uh, 
you know, the Manhattan Project is kind of like a, a sunk cost. So, yeah. you know, I mean, everybody wants to drop it, you know, like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, people in the cabinet want to drop it. Um, there is kind of an argument on, you know, what they want to drop the bomb or where they want to drop the bomb. So it's like, should they drop it on a city full of civilians or should they drop it in some rural area where there's not that many civilians or should they drop it, you know, in a, on, on a military, you know, base. And so there were kind of figures, you know, like, uh, uh, Marshall, uh, who was, I believe, uh, Truman's, uh, secretary of state at that time. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, he was definitely against, um, dropping it, you know, on a city full of, uh, civilians, uh, in some of their earlier meetings. But, you know, as, you know, the course of time went, you know, after, you know, we had like some distance between the dropping of the two bombs, uh, you know, Marshall would defend it and give, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, average, you know, uh, U.S. kind of propaganda answer that, uh, you know, we just had to drop those two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was so funny. I I was very much embarrassed by this. that I went all the way through, you know, high school history classes. I was a history major in college, right? And read and did 20th century and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, the 20th century was like my, my thing or whatever, right? That mm-hmm. I took my classes in. And I remember the first time, I think it was maybe in an article by Samuel Walker, who is a person who worked, I believe, with the Department of Energy and then became like a historian of the atomic bomb. Uh, I think it was in reading an article by him after I'd, long after I'd left college that this question that you just brought up, finally occurred to me was like you know it's weird that we never asked why we dropped it on a city like yeah (laughs) that there's other options right like you didn't have to do that and the funny thing is is you could say like well maybe in the the heat of war right that uh that you know that just that just doesn't occur to you you know you're now a hammer and everything's a nail or some bullshit like that but as you mentioned Literally, this comes from people inside the Truman administration. Yeah, General Marshall, uh, he floats the idea with Truman before it gets dropped that they should uh, bomb an isolated military installation, which he'd even found one that was basically unoccupied. It was like, hey, why don't we drop it on this military installation? And then, you know, we'll bring in Japanese advisors to watch as we do it. And then, you know, it'll be obvious, like, what this means to them, right? And uh, Leo Sislard, who actually is the physicist who writes to Roosevelt and basically encourages him to create the Manhattan Project and is a major player on the Manhattan Project, you know, he actually points to some unoccupied islands off the coast of Japan, of which there are many, and basically says, you know, look, let's get some of these Japanese ministers who are trying to, you know, force a surrender or whatever. Let's get them on a boat. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, under a white flag, we'll get them on a naval ship and we'll drop it on one of these unoccupied islands. And again, you know, that should be enough to make it understood and to force the surrender. And it's interesting because the Los Alamos Targeting Committee, which was the group that was, you know, tasked with deciding where to drop the bomb, uh, they had sort of a different take on it. 
And uh, their take was that they chose Hiroshima and Kyoto, and Nagasaki was Kyoto's backup. Kyoto was just cloudy yeah. that day. Um, but uh, Hiroshima and Kyoto, and they basically choose them because the cities hadn't been destroyed yet. And basically they said that a city with a large population center would uh, create the proper psychological effect that would make the initial use of the bomb sufficiently spectacular for the importance of the weapon to be internationally recognized. And it's kind of interesting because it basically means that A, dropping it on a civilian population was 100% on purpose and a choice, right? Yeah. More so than we normally say. Like, I mean, they literally weighed other options for like, no, let's drop it on a civilian population. In fact, let's find a city that hasn't been fully evacuated yet and drop it on that one. Well, right, because we yeah. have been uh, like conducting these massive bombing campaigns, you know, on a number of uh, cities in Japan, right? Killing, mm-hmm. I don't know how many people, but, um, you know, the atomic bomb was not, there There are like, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would guess like, hundreds of thousands of non, you know, atomic bomb casualties before this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been firebombing uh, cities in Japan, including, you know, a massive... I mean, the reason why, you know, Tokyo wasn't nuked is that essentially we had already burned Tokyo to ashes by firebombing it over the course of months. Um, Which, by the way, was a a whole campaign that was uh, organized and planned uh, by Curtis, you know, Curtis LeMay, who becomes the first head of the strategic air command, which is the group of, uh, you know, bombers that are, you know, that are part of the nuclear fleet essentially. And LeMay is, you know, very proud of himself for coming up with this idea of firebombing Japanese cities, you know, and the the unique uh, destruction and like death that it would rain down. And interestingly, he's then chosen to be put in charge of the nuclear arsenal, which I think says a lot. But uh, a real cowboy figure, I believe in uh, I believe like half the characters in uh, Dr. Strangelove are basically supposed to be Curtis LeMay, <laughs> like oh, right. different yeah, yeah, aspects yeah. of Curtis LeMay's personality. But most yeah. certainly the guy riding the bomb down uh, with the cowboy hat <laughs> and about half the people in the Pentagon war room. Are supposed the to be precious bodily fluids guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they oh. made this sort of conscious choice uh, to bomb a civilian population, and I think in the targeting committee, when they say that's important for the Im- that they need the importance of the bomb to be internationally recognized, yeah. I think the other thing to see there is when they say internationally, they don't mean Japan. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna say. Like to your earlier question, like why did we drop the atomic bomb on you know a city full of civilians? Um, I think we were talking earlier about how like you know russia was just you know getting into the war with japan and i think it is clearly like you know maybe the start of uh you know cold war intimidation like this definitely was about intimidating russia with like a show of like military strength like here's how many people we can kill on command yeah and Truman had felt that Roosevelt had given too much away at Yalta. And basically, once he hears about the bomb, he immediately starts, uh, 
you know, Oppenheimer even mentions that they're put under tremendous pressure to have, you know, a weapon tested before the Potsdam conference. And Truman even delays the Potsdam conference uh, three separate times uh, before, you know, in order to try and buy time (laughs) to, uh, you know, for the bomb to be tested, right? And maybe even potentially used. Uh, He eventually has to agree because Stalin and Churchill are both like, hey, you know, it's, you know, it's fucking July. We're entering the war in August. Like we have to sit down and actually make a plan for what to do in Europe and Japan post-war, right? And, you know, so Truman basically pushes it back all the way to late July and they end up testing it while he's at the conference, right? And he gets a uh telegram and basically letting him know that the bomb had been successfully dropped at which point he whispers a little missive uh you know, to stalin's ear about hey you know we have this new thing that we're gonna be trying out in japan why don't you keep an eye out for it you know well, also much. the the soviets were working on an atomic mm-hmm. bomb of their own at the same time like i think stalin was pretty like uh stone-faced about it but like they were working on it like they would detonate one what like uh four or five years later something like that yeah i mean it's interesting i mean it it appears that essentially everybody except for the british which we can just assume is because of their horrifying genetic deformations from living on an island for several millennia uh but the germans are building one the u.s is building one the soviet union's building one uh japan apparently had like kind of was kind of building one uh yeah everybody was everybody was at it as they say and i think it's probably safe to say from what we know now uh you know uh post the soviet collapse what we know now about the soviet sort of spy apparatus uh intelligence apparatus in dc is that the Soviet Union was probably as aware of the atomic bomb project in the U.S. as uh, the United States was, uh, or as Truman was. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, there's these quotes. So, you know, Secretary of State James Burns, he sums up at one point that the use of the bomb will put us in a position to, well, quote, put us in a position to dictate our own terms at the end of the war, right? Uh Leo Sislard, you know, in May of 45, talks about how in his, you know, journal or whatever, talks about how he'd had a conversation with Burns. And he says, Mr. quote, Mr. Burns did not argue that it was necessary to use the bomb against the cities of Japan in order to win the war. Mr. Burns' view was that our possessing and demonstrating the bomb would make Russia more manageable in Europe. Burns thought Russia might be more manageable if impressed by American military might. Right. And so over and over again from people within the administration, it becomes very clear that this is about Russia, right? This is about the Soviet Union, the post-war order. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're dividing all these countries up between them. Like, it's completely like uh, leverage and intimidation play. Yeah, and I think that there's the cold, hard sort of real politic of it, which is that they're they by 44 the u.s has already sort of uh it's emotionally left the allied relationship right (laughs) you know and has moved on to its next thing which is a war with the soviet union in fact you know it appears that uh 
some in the U.S. military even are starting to wonder why they fought the Nazis in the first place, right? Why not, uh, you know, why not just invade the Soviet Union? Uh, but there's also these other factors, which you'd mentioned one that came into play as well, because any decision like this or whatever is always complicated, right? And one of the ones you brought up, which I think is worth going into a little bit more, is the sheer cost and momentum of the Manhattan Project itself. Yeah. Which, you know, nothing the U.S. had ever done, like no U.S. weapons project certainly had ever had this kind of price tag before. It's It was a stunningly expensive project costing $4 billion, uh, which is roughly $51 billion today, employing 130,000 people. And you have to keep in mind, this is happening when there's war shortages on the actual war fronts, right? So soldiers are being denied, you know, actual material and stuff they need because there's shortages in money, shortages in production, things like that. Uh, but this this project is going on, just eating up resources. Yeah, I mean, there are things like, uh, you know, that uh, committee Truman had to investigate, you know, military waste. Well, they didn't get to investigate this, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, certain parts of the budget they noticed uh, were very blacked out. You had yeah. no idea what was happening. And, you know, it's it's worth noting, you know, uh, Leslie Groves, who is the sort of military head of the Manta- Manhattan Project, he, like, regularly and openly worried that, hey, if we don't, you, if we don't drop at least one of these bombs we're developing – like we could go to jail, <laughs> you know, and wow. uh, you know, Stimson after the bomb was tested, after he was told about the successful test of the project, he wrote in his journal, "I've been responsible for spending two billion dollars on this atomic venture. Now that it's successful, I should not be sent to prison in Fort Leavenworth." <laughs> and you know, I, I imagine he's probably like slightly joking there, but the thing is, is prior to or not prior, but after every uh, war since the Civil War, you know, the American Congress had always had massive hearings about, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse and the weapons and war industry. And people did occasionally go to jail for these things, right? Um, you know, including, yeah, including after World War One, which would have been the one these guys remember, but certainly after the Civil War. Um, and it was one of those things that I don't think it's nothing that these guys were complaining about this or mentioning it. Some part of them had to think like, there's going to be repercussions if we spend all this money and waste all this time and nothing comes of it. Right. I mean, that's super interesting because like, I I feel like now people just do not care about military spending or military (laughs) waste. Like if you've ever been to uh, whatever it's called in Dayton, Ohio, like the, aerospace museum or the museum of flight whatever it's called like there's all these exhibits of like you know military you know planes or uh you know like uh drones or you know like uh you know anything you can use to like drop bombs or like satellites and stuff but uh you notice like if you read kind of uh the little uh you know placard or you know, pamphlet thing or whatnot, it'll say that, uh, you know, this was, uh, this cost like, you know, $3 million to build and, uh, you know, had one mm-hmm. test flight and then we retired it. 
And that's it. <laughs> or, or this thing, uh, we spent $5 million on it, uh, but it's never seen flight, but it's here is, uh, you know, memento, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's full of all that kind of crap. And people are like, yeah, whatever, you know, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really interesting. And I, and I, and, you know, we'll definitely take this up later, but the Cold War really does change the American uh, view of military spending in particular, right? Uh, in a way that had never happened before. I mean, after every, again, after every American war, the military had always been whittled down again to its like lowest possible number and least possible expenditure, right? You know, um, it really is the Cold War that creates this idea of like, no, the military should always be on a war footing, right? And always be spending <laughs> on a war yeah. footing. But for us, that that's history for us. But for these guys, that's the future, right? And, you know, they're worried, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're worried that the more likely thing, which is the U.S. does what it always has done, is what's going to come out of this. And, you know, and I think in their minds too, it's not just like, if the project doesn't work, like if, if making a bomb, it turns out is impossible, right? They're worried too. What if the project is going to work, right? But we don't drop one, which basically in their mind, like for the public, that's the same as it not working, right? We were developing a weapon for World War II and World War II ended and we never used the weapon. And it was not exact. I mean, it's a fairly straight line from that to so how many people died because you wasted money on this bullshit, right? Yeah. And I and there was some concern, right? And so the uh, historian who's been banging this drum for a while is this guy, Stanley Goldberg. I just had this quote from him that I think is very good, which is, uh, quote, The bomb dropped on Hiroshima, a uranium bomb, justified the more than $1 billion investment in isotope separation at Oak Ridge. The bomb dropped on Nagasaki justified the more than $400 million spent on Hanford. It seems clear today that the rush to produce the active material and to drop the bombs on Japan as soon as possible was driven largely by a fear that a war might end before both types of fission bombs could be used, right? And in here, it's the sort of cold calculus of bureaucrats, right, that Goldberg's pointing to of like, this is part of the momentum of the project is to do anything less than use them would have been a failure, Right. Gotta check things off that uh Google Sheet or whatever they had back then in the forties. <laughs> Gotta use your IBM punch cards that the Germans didn't buy yes. all up. <laughs> yes. But yeah, and I mean in part of it too is that, you know, maybe maybe Stimson's joking, right, about going to Leavenworth, right? Maybe when Groves talks about it, he's kind of joking about going to jail. Uh they're still worried about their political careers, right? And for, you know, these lifelong, you know, sort of creatures of DC and stuff, or creatures of the War Department, Grove's part, uh, on Grove's part, that shit matters. That matters more probably than going to jail, is that I'll never get promoted again and will probably be sent into Siberia, right? Of, you yeah. know, you know, uh, you know, as opposed to come out of this a hero. Um but yeah, I mean, so that's, that's one aspect of dropping the bomb that's worth remembering. And I think the other one that's kind of important to keep in mind, too, is the incredible, like, racism that, you know, is kind of mentions anti-Japanese, but was basically just anti-Asian racism that was unleashed by World War II, uh, which created maybe not the impetus for making the bomb, 
but it certainly made dropping the bomb a lot more okay, I think, in a lot of people's minds. I mean, it's it's stunning how what people's opinions of the Japanese were <laughs> on a racial basis. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, I, I kind of vaguely remember, like, um, you know, as a kid being shown uh, these videos of, uh, you know, like the U.S. Uh, island hopping campaign mm -hmm. and just like how racist those were just like looking back even i mean even like a, a few years later as i kind of like uh, learned more it's like oh that was pretty fucked up um and uh yeah yeah and i mean as a kid in the 80s i remember watching just you know saturday morning cartoons or whatever watching looney tunes cartoons that were still i mean they were reruns i don't know that anybody made a new looney tunes cartoon in like 20 years so i started watching them but the like the tojo imagery and stuff like that the caricatures were all still like regularly <laughs> in the episodes and stuff yeah. right the the buck teeth and the all that kind of shit right was all still there and it is uh the that that racism was it really was stunning. Uh, in I believe it's in '42, the New York Times printed out this like full page, you know, not ad, but this full page image that was a Japanese hunting license for the Marines or whatever. And it was so if you know some member of your family, if your son or brother or whatever, uh, was joining the Marines and shipping off to fight in the Pacific Theater. You would, uh, you know, take this issue of the paper of record and cut out this fun Japanese hunting license and like hand oh it to God. Him, right? Um, the collection of like war dead trophies from the Pacific Theater was so commonplace that FDR himself had a letter opener that was made from the femur of a Japanese soldier. Oh, right? Jesus, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently, that one seemed like it went a little too far. When he bragged about it, people got mad, so he had to hide it. He couldn't keep it on his desk anymore. Um, there was a picture in Life magazine at the time, which Life magazine's like, you know, the public sort of middle-brow magazine, right, of, of the time period. Uh, there was this famous photo, which you can still find online, of a nurse at her work desk and uh, she has the skull on her desk. And I think she calls the skull like Little Tojo or something like that. And it's the skull that her Marine husband had sent home to her uh, and mailed back to her from the uh, Japanese theater, right? I mean, it really was something that is, you know, it's it's hard to describe in like the modern era where, you know, there's certainly ra racism against Asian people or whatever, but the, the virulence of it is a little... <laughs> It's a little tough to describe. Um, but yeah, Truman at one point, you know, referring to the Japanese says the only language they seem to understand is the one we have been using to bombard them. When you have to deal with a beast, you have to treat him like a beast. Yeah. And it's, you know, as uh, James Weingartner is like a story who studies this guy's stuff, which is he's like, you know, there's a kinship between the charred bones of Tokyo, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the polished bones of souvenirs gathered on Guadal uh, Guadalcanal, New Guinea and Iwo Jima. And I'll put some, uh, you know, we'll do notes for this episode like we always do. And I'll put some article stuff. But, I mean, there's been large grave sites where, you know, U.S. soldiers just dumped, you know, the soldiers of Japanese dead or Japanese soldiers that died, right, in battles. Very common. You just dig a mass grave and stick the bodies in it, right? 
uh, but they've been it had these exhumed grave sites where all the heads are missing, you know, that oh kind of God. shit because they all got shipped back. Um, it's it's some really uh, horrifying shit. Uh, and part of the reason why I think this is important is that anti sort of Asian racism then gets extended to the Soviet Union itself, right? And then becomes another part of, you know, not just justification for dropping the bombs or something to at least make dropping the bombs make you feel, you don't feel so bad about it. But uh, to set up the sort of Cold War too, I mean, in uh, 46, George Patton tells, like, at a press conference, goes on one of his characteristic spiels and just starts saying, the difficulty in understanding the Russian is that we do not take cognizant of the fact that he is not a European, but an Asiatic, and therefore he thinks deviously. We can no more understand a Russian than a Chinese or a Japanese, and for what I have seen of them, I have no particular desire to understand them except to ascertain how much lead or iron it takes to kill them. So, you know, it's uh, this sort of idea of like an occidental versus oriental uh like clash of civilizations is thoroughly ingrained right by the end of the war um it's certainly part of that atomic bomb decision uh you know speaking of Patton, you know there there are a lot of groups he didn't care much for oh buddy oh buddy we're gonna get to that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let, let's just say that he had a lot more in common with the guys he was fighting than, yeah. uh, <laughs> than uh, maybe we'd like to let on. But um, but yeah, it's, you know, I I think the, the main sort of takeaway about the discussion of the bomb, and, I, and like I said, I think, you know, Al Perovitz has a, an enormous tome you can read called The Decision to Use the Bomb, although I'll also post in the notes... Uh, a lecture he gave in the nineties where he kind of just lays out his sort of take on it in a much short in eight pages. You don't have to read the 1000 pages he wrote on it. You just read the eight pages and you'll get the gist of it. If you want all the fun details, read the book, but um, you know, his sort of take on it, which I think is correct. I mean, he has a, a pretty overwhelming kind of uh, body of evidence is that the use of the bombs was about intimidating the Soviet Union and was essentially the first act of the Cold War. And that the three month window from the end of the war in, in Europe to the Soviet entry of the war in Asia essentially is a ticking clock, you know, uh, where the U.S. is just desperately trying to get this thing finished and dropped. And we just barely make it in under the window, right? So, you know, the Soviet Union was entering the war on August 8th, no matter what. In August 6th, we just are barely able to finally get that bomb off and dropped. And uh, that, I think, pretty safely puts the use of the bomb in the category of horrifying war crime. Uh, Yeah. And interestingly, lots of, you know, there was lots of Japanese, obviously, in these cities. There was, interestingly, also American and British POWs in Hiroshima, uh there was also uh large numbers of korean uh slave laborers who have been brought from korea into japan who are in those cities that of course uh were also killed in the bombing uh i believe the bombing itself kills 200 i think 140,000 people between hiroshima and nagasaki are killed you know that day the day the bombs are dropped and then another 300,000 die from effects of the bombs being dropped and they usually underestimate 
those figures like especially like you know the 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 nation state like dropping the bomb is going to underestimate those numbers oh yeah and the thing is is that there's also just no way to know because of the state japan was in at that time i mean it's a country in complete collapse by the time the bombs are dropped i mean this isn't a powerful state where people are staying put and records are being kept right this is everything's falling apart there's actually a significant number of people who die in Nagasaki who basically were refugees from Hiroshima after the bomb gets dropped, end up being settled in Nagasaki, and then Nagasaki gets bombed, right? And so yeah. there's a weird category in Japan of what are called double survivors, of people who somehow managed to survive literally both bombs. Wow. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the people who do survive the bombs in Japan after the war are basically considered outcasts at that point, too. I mean, they carry the scars of this defeat. I mean, a lot of them are hideously deformed and things like that by the effects of the bomb. And they essentially are held, you know, they're kept from jobs, right? They're considered unmarriable, right? There is, you know, rumors and stuff going around that, you know, that the you know, maladies that they have from the bomb are uh, contagious or that they, if they have kids that the kids will have them, which by the way, in some cases does happen. Uh, You know, it it really is this long lasting human impact that goes on decades after the war, right? Where people are suffering decades after the war. It's, it's, it's really tragic and um, fucking disgusting, honestly. Yeah. It's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Basically, when it comes down to that, this has, you know, we come back to that Stimson article that A, this had nothing to do with what we we're always told it had something to do with. And B, we were essentially intentionally lied to <laughs> for decades about this. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty fucking gross. This man's invention that they call atomic power Are we all in great confusion? Do we know the time or hour? When a terrible explosion may rain down upon our land Leaving horrible destruction Blotting out the works of man Are you ready for that great atomic power? Will you rise and meet your Savior? Are you ready for that great atomic power? 